Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Years before Jim Lair was a news anchor on PBS, he worked at a bus depot. Now leaving from lane one... For Inez, Edna, Ganeda, Louise, Al Campo, Pierce, Wharton, Hungerford, Kendleton, Beasley, Rosenberg, Richmond, Sugarland, Stafford, Missouri, City, and Houston. All aboard! Don't forget your baggage, please. It's Bullseye. This week, the veteran public broadcaster Jim Lair explains the advantages of working with a lower budget. You can't afford to waste any money on something that doesn't matter. So that really focuses your mind. I can relate. But first, I talked to actor Andrew Reynolds. He grew up a gay kid in Nebraska. He broke through on Broadway in the Book of Mormon. Now he's on TV shows like The New Normal and Girls. We'll talk about all that. Plus, he'll tell me how to avoid awkward moments when filming a nude scene. I mean, I was concerned about the logistics. Plus, Tao Wen of Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down talks about the song that changed her life. It felt transcendent. All this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. On every episode of Bullseye, we get some culture recommendations from our favorite critics. This week, we're joined by Josh Modell and Scott Tobias, the general manager and film editor, respectively, of the AV Club. Hey, guys. Hi there. Josh, let's talk about your pick first. It's a new album by a band called Adams for Peace. The album is called Amok. Now, this is quite the supergroup with Tom York of Radiohead, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and uh, the famous producer of Radiohead, Nigel Goodrich. Let's take a listen to a little bit of their song, Dropped. So, Josh, why is this, uh, well, I mean, I guess there are varying opinions on the traveling Wilburys, but why is this this supergroup, like the one supergroup of all time that's actually worth paying attention to? Well, first I will say I don't think there's much dissension about traveling Wilburys. I think everybody pretty much likes traveling Wilburys, or at least one song of theirs. Um, (laughs) This is a very strange supergroup in a way because it's really, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone's necessarily saying this, but it's not really a super group. It's a Tom York record with a bunch of people kind of jamming with him. You know, I don't know what Nigel Godrich necessarily sounds like, uh, but I know Flea, and I'm saying this as a person who is not a Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, uh, is excellent on this Adams for Peace record. Um, he's kind of, I feel, fits perfectly into what York was looking for, which is this, you know, very, very kind of electronic sound but he flea brings in uh, a lot of really warm kind of uh, human low end to it Scott Tobias, your recommendation this week is a film called Beyond the Hills. It's out March 8th in limited release. This is a Romanian movie by the director Christian Munju. I hope I'm saying that right. Apologies to any Romanians in our audience. Um, Scott, tell us a little bit about what this movie's about. Beyond the Hills is based on an incident in 2005 where a woman supposedly possessed by evil spirits was tortured to death in a Romanian monastery in an effort to cast those spirits out. And, uh, you know, what's striking, what got me really thinking about the film uh, is this book, uh, Going Clear, uh, Lawrence Wright's uh, new book about Scientology. The one phrase that stuck with me was the prison of belief, this idea of the faithful walling themselves up in religious conviction, even as it does them great harm. Uh, Beyond the Hills takes place in a remote Orthodox convent in Romania, uh, where the women live in extraordinarily simple but severe circumstances. Could you describe maybe the feeling that the film gives you? Well, uh, what the film does really well is connects the viewer uh, with uh, a set of beliefs that are foreign to them, you know, because I think if you look at what is happening from the outside, it's incomprehensible 
uh, the way they treat this woman. But the film kind of uh, really gets you so um, involved in this universe that you can kind of see the logic of, of what they're trying to accomplish. And you can see basically kind of what, you know, uh, how, where faith comes from and, and, and what its limits are. Oh, it's a wonderful movie. Scott Tobias, the film editor of the AV Club, recommends the film Beyond the Hills. And Josh Modell, the AV Club's general manager, recommends the album by Adams for Peace, Amok. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. All actors work with the gifts they were born with. My guest, Andrew Rannells, is handsome, gay, and he has an unmissable air of Midwestern pleasantness. He brought those qualities to his Tony-nominated performance as a young Mormon missionary in the Book of Mormon. He's a regular on HBO's Girls, where he plays Lena Dunham's gay roommate-slash-college boyfriend. And on NBC's The New Normal, he plays a sort of surrogate for show creator Ryan Murphy, a young Hollywood writer starting a family with his male partner. Here's Reynolds' distinctive mix of broad, generous sincerity and a hint of slyness on display in The Book of Mormon. After his character, Elder Price, has faced a crisis of faith, he reaffirms his Mormon beliefs in the show-stopping belter, I Believe. I must trust that my Lord is mightier and always has my back. Now I must be completely devout. I can't have even one shred of doubt. I believe that the Lord God created the universe. I believe that he sent his only son to die for my sins. And I believe that ancient Jews built boats and sailed to America. I am a Mormon, and a Mormon just believes. Andrew, welcome to Bullseye. Well, thank you for having me. That's a special kind of torture. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to listen, to have to listen to yourself. So one of the things, I, I didn't get to see um, uh, Book of Mormon in New York. Oh, oh forget it. I know. Sorry. Just I'm out for, of here. Then just forget it. And, uh, <laughs> but one of the things that I've loved about um, hearing you sing the songs and seeing you on, you know, televised performances and stuff like that is that the tone of the musical and especially your part calls on you to be a very classic Broadway guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the it's the juvenile role in the, <laughs> in, the like, in technical terms. Elder Price was very much written as like Trey and Matt and Bobby Lopez wanted him to be sort of quintessential musical theater leading boy. What did you get from them after you got the part? What did they what did they tell you they wanted? Um not a lot. I mean, I feel like it was uh I, I, feel, I feel like it was one of the rare experiences as an actor that I, I looked at that material and I thought, I know exactly how to do this. Like, this one I know how to do. Because a lot of times you struggle with stuff, particularly like, you know, with audition material. You don't you want to try to find the way in. You want to try to, you know, what the, how am I going to inhabit this? And with that one, I just looked at it and I thought, I'm, I think... I think my gut instincts are going to be correct on this one, and I, I shouldn't overthink this. When I see um, Mormon missionaries on the street, um, which I do, I've lived yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, of a lot of a lot of door to door Mormon missionaries. Um, as a, as a non Mormon, I'm always sort of awed by by their commitment to that faith, especially as young, especially in the context of them being young men, you know, 18, yeah, yeah. 19, 20, 21 year old men. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I mean, it, it's, it would have terrified me to do anything like that. Oh yeah. I, you know, I, I certainly don't have that. <laughs> yeah. Condition. I mean, I, I was going to ask, <laughs> is it, is there, is there anything in your life that you've ever believed in? Well, in I mean, way? I guess like, I mean, if, a version, I suppose, is like you know musical theater that I, like I went I moved from Nebraska to go to New York because I had this passion to you know to be on Broadway. So I suppose that in a way is my version of that. Was that was that always your goal as an actor to be one hundred percent? Yeah, 
that was my goal. That was a, a finish line for me was to get in a Broadway show. What was the first show you ever did? I mean, ever, not just professionally. Like as a child, I the first show I ever did was um, a children's theater production of The Snow Queen. Um, How old were you? I was 11, and I had no lines, but I was thrilled, absolutely thrilled. Did you like pitch this to your parents? Were your parents theatery types or not at all? I mean, they were supportive. Um, there was like an awareness of like musical theater, and of my dad really loved movies, and so there was like a lot of you know talk about like from a from a viewer standpoint of like movies and actors and you know and, and you, things you like grew that. up in a pretty big catholic family yeah. right yeah yeah there's seven, five kids five kids yeah yeah uh, but they didn't really i don't want to say they weren't interested but they weren't they certainly never pushed like anything that i wanted to do i very much did it and not like in a I'm not saying that like Dina Lohan, like I, you know, my mom really didn't like suggest I do anything. <laughs> like I really would come to her and be like, "Can I please audition for this?" Um, and I'm they, glad you clarified that. There's, yeah, my mom is not time, Dina Lohan. I was just imagining <laughs> Dina Lohan. But you know, when pa- when parents and... say that, oh no, we didn't push them. We certainly never pushed our our kids. My mom really was just like, yeah, "If you wanna, if you wanna go, I'll drive you." But like, I had to find out about these things, and then. As a as a kid, did you think of yourself as gay? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't know what the word was, um, but certainly, yeah. I mean, I certainly knew that that was that that's that I was attracted to men. Like, um, I feel like I've talked about this too much, but I I remember watching Grease Two, the movie Grease Two, <laughs> and feeling like I want to date. Um, Maxwell Caulfield, like I like my in my weird like five year old head, I was like I want to marry Maxwell Caulfield, and not just in a very like clear cut way. Do you think there was something about uh, m- musical theater that drew you to it specifically, rather relative to wanting to be, you know, Tom Hanks or something like that? Yeah, well, that seemed not that didn't seem accessible. Like being on television being in a movie being like that was not a thing in Omaha Nebraska that seemed even though that stuff occasionally came to town like you occasionally got close to things like that like there'd be like a, you know I don't know like a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie filmed near Omaha so like that's a thing like that was a thing that was there that like and in practical terms it's actually a sort of a more daunting task to oh, try yeah. and make it on Broadway than it is to try and make oh. it a film and television oh I don't know I th- I felt like it was theater was what was in front of me and it was it was accessible and I was able to kind of jump on board with that. Whereas if you were to say, like, you want to be on TV, I, you know, I wouldn't have even known how to begin to be on television, but I knew that I could get to a theater and do that. It, it took you a while to break through on Broadway. And mm-hmm. um, as I was looking at your IMDb page, I noted that, like, a significant chunk it's of a your credits... Lot. Yeah, I know what you're going to say. ...are... are Anime. Odd anime voiceover roles. Yes. I, for several years, um, for like three years, I did just a boatload of, of, uh, how do you voiceovers. even? I just picture you just like standing on a subway and a Japanese man hands you a flyer that says, basically, you want to be on a cartoon? I started that actually in high school. Um, that was sort of a weird thing that I, I was, uh, uh, this company called Deke that made Saturday morning cartoons for ABC at the time. Um, randomly came to Omaha, Nebraska to audition to record a show there Um, because they were looking for – I now understand they were looking for non-union actors to to do this this job. So as like a 15-year-old, I auditioned to be in a cartoon and got it. What was the cartoon? It was called The Street Sharks. And um, we did it for like two seasons. It was on Saturday mornings on ABC. And we – I recorded this cartoon. Like on – I would go on Saturdays and there would be like ten local actors and we would all record this show. And then what, – um, What happened in Street Sharks? It was like the Ninja Turtles. I mean it was like – except, you know, sharks instead of turtles. Right. And that's, <laughs> that's basically the premise. I think I, I think I just told you the entire thing. Um but then the producer. To this, be fair, they also ate calzones instead of pizza. Yeah, I don't recall eating. Yeah, yeah, I don't. I don't think there was any sort of food tie-in. Um, but this great producer named Marsha Goodman um, kept sort of throwing work uh, Omaha's way, and then when I moved to New York, she continued to throw work my way. So I did a couple other series for her, um, and that 
in a sort of indirect way led to my working for this company called Four Kids Entertainment that did like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh and all that stuff. So um, I ended up working for them for like three years. So and tell me, tell me what was the uh, what was the best scene? Now you don't always have a full perspective on the finished product when never. you're recording voiceover. Yeah. But what was the best thing, whether you realized it at the time or not, uh, that you appeared in? Um, I well, I I uh, I also directed two. I directed two series for them, and I just uh, I only bring this up to say that even as the director who would read the script and like help like re-edit the show, I still had no idea what was happening. <laughs> So the only thing I could say to these poor actors would be like, maybe faster? I don't know. Um, had no clue what was happening. Um, but the greatest... Uh, it's about the craft. It's it was really about the craft. the craft. I'm so highbrow in that way. The the greatest thing I probably was a part of was a show called The Fighting Foodons. Never heard of it? Not surprised. Uh, yeah, it's really... I, and, and it was these kids, and they would it was you know basically all of those cartoons. It's like a fight thing, right? They're constantly battling. There's some sort of like... No, especially the Yu-Gi-Oh! Yes, and it's Pokemon. all the same. It's about some kids that have a, like a space animal uh, yeah, that fights on and their they're behalf. Fighting. So this thing, instead of space animals, was food, but the uh-huh. food was sort of like humanized. Sure. So I played a character called Fried Ricer <laughs> that was literally a man's body with the – like his head was a wok and had fried rice in it. But the only thing that you could say as Fried Ricer was Fried Ricer. <laughs> So can was, you give me a couple a couple a, I would say a couple looks but it's just a couple Well uh, like you would say like it would you know it was ridiculous cuz I worked with this guy who would say like okay well fried ricer you have to be like confused you go fried ricer <laughs> and fried ricer is sad fried ricer <laughs> like that's all you could do Did they just build up like a sound effects library of yeah. you saying fried ricer you do, in a variety yeah. of you times actually, and just drop them in Yeah it's called Walla you record like it's a technical animation term. You record like a bunch of you know stuff, um, sound effects like you know getting punched, getting falling, laughing, and you do all of these things. But and you then, only say fried rice. Yeah, and then they plug them in as needed. It's ridiculous. <laughs> okay, fried. It rice. paid the bills. It paid the bills, you guys. You're experiencing sexual happiness. Yeah, fried rice. Fried rice. <laughs> it's a skill. It's a magic skill. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the actor Andrew Reynolds. He was nominated for a Tony for his role as Elder Price in the Broadway run of The Book of Mormon. He also appears on the HBO show Girls and co-stars in The New Normal on NBC. Our upcoming conversation has some adult topics, so heads up. I want to play a clip of you performing on the HBO show Girls. All right. Um, this is from last season, season one. Um, you have just uh, you, you've just sort of sat down to a date with Lena Dunham's character, <laughs> Hannah, um, and you, the two of you, were boyfriend and girlfriend in college, mm-hmm. and she is about to sort of, you know, tell you about how great how set up she is in life which she isn't no um and you are about to uh make her question her own fitness to lead yes well she's actually she's brought me there to accuse me of giving her hpv so (laughs) there's a lot of things going on it's really great to hear from you Really great to hear from you. I mean, I, I, I've been thinking how much I wanted to speak with you. Well, Elijah, um, I'm really happy to see you, too. <laughs> I don't want to mislead you. Mm-hmm. I did not bring you here to retread old territory emotionally. Okay. Um, I'm more open to it physically. And <laughs> I brought you here to talk about something pretty specific, mm-hmm. which is a little bit touchy. All right. And I don't want to assume anything about you and other partners. It's true. It's true? And I, I hate that you found out through the post-collegiate rumor mill, but I'm glad that you heard because, you know, things with Bo were moving so quickly and I just felt like eventually we were going to either see you or... Bo? What's his name? Yes. And Bo is... My lover. Who's male? Yes. I didn't know. Oh. So. Oh. You're gay. Oh well, I don't um, I don't say, gay. 
I don't say straight either. I'm 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 with a person of my own gender, which which essentially means that I am, you know, heretic. Um, which I love. Well, thank you. Which I love. Thank you. Oh, Hannah, 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 Hannah. Don't. 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 Okay. I'm fine. What I'm having right now is an inappropriate physical reaction to my total joy for you and your self-discovery. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. And listen, I want you to know that this this exploration uh, was very much inspired by you. <laughs> um, it's it's a really it's a really funny scene. I think it um, it exemplifies this thing that goes on in a lot of girls. Uh, the television program girls, which is that there is this huge set of characters and all of them um, just almost completely lack empathy. (laughs) (laughs) They're finding it. They're certainly finding it. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Because there's a, there's, um, which I think is so amazing what what Lena is able to capture is that um, such a lack of awareness of everything that's happening around you, and in you know if, if you if you're watching the second season, like the, they're they're figuring that out now, and they're sort of learning that about each other and themselves. And but the first season, it was so great that she was able to sort of just really <laughs> embrace that attitude, just being so checked out. <laughs> um, do you do you feel like you were ever that checked out as a nineteen oh, year old or whatever? I'm certain I was. Um, I'm certain I was, but uh, I try not to think about that. <laughs> I might still be. I don't know. I don't know. D- have you have you ever had a girlfriend? Um, not seriously. I mean, I dated a girl in in, in high school, but like only technically. I mean, that was the funny thing about the the second season of Girls that you know Elijah um, attempts that with Allison Williams' character, like they try to have sex, and um. It just sort of solidified my decision to not do that. Ever. <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm pretty, is, I'm pretty certain." It is such a weird, sad scene. It was a very sad scene because they're both trying so hard to be. Whatever. She's just sort of she's in this place where she's she's trying to figure out what her deal is after sort of thinking she had it, she was on top of it, and yeah. then not being on top of it at all. She's unemployed and single and all these other yeah. things, and she's like, "Well, maybe I'm like Let's a fun, outrageous out. lady yeah. at the same time as." You've just had your boyfriend, your much older, richer boyfriend, mm-hmm. walk out on you while super wasted. Yeah. And so you're like, well, maybe I'm another thing. Well, and, you know, I think that certainly that's the time, you know, your early 20s. Like that's – yeah, that's when you you are allowed to sort of flail about and figure that out and, and try different things and, yeah. Was there, was there any discussion uh, – uh, amongst the uh, writing team and the performers about how exactly the physical part of it would go like i don't i'm trying to be delicate and yeah, talk no, about this in ways that can uh be discussed on public radio on the show fine. on the show it let's just say it all falls apart very early on <laughs> yes yes it does um well it was interesting the way that i was my first sex scene and first you know nude scene and i was um, but felt, you know, happy that they asked me to do it because I felt like, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it on girls. <laughs> um, so let's, uh, I want to do it. Um, so I was happy to, happy to say yes. Um, and then to do it with Allison was great because she had done a couple and she was very like practical about it and very understanding of any of my concerns or nerves about it. So she was really she was really lovely. Um, Were you concerned about it? I mean, I will, I'll say going into this, you know, you're a you're a handsome man in excellent shape. Well, thank you. Thank um, you. I mean, I was concerned about the logistics, but it, the way that it was written, I was like, well, how in the hell are we going to do this in a way that, like, I'm not I, – I, I was just having a hard time sort of visualizing, a, 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 <laughs> a, like, a modest way right. to, to do these things. Sure. But it was great. Jenny Connor and Lena Dunham um, – we very sort of like carefully like talked it through how it was going to go and um and Allison was really um was very nice about it and she's and I don't think that she would care that I repeat this but she said to me at one point we just have to be okay with the fact that at some point your penis is going to be against my vagina <laughs> <laughs> and I said okay all right i'm okay with that. that's 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 just as long as we're clear that is going to happen. You know, my experience was that they put something on, like a, you know, some sort of a modesty 
sock essentially uh-huh. sure. um, that you wear, and the ladies have a similar getup. Um, so Allison and I basically look like Barbie and Ken. Like we stood next to each other in these like weird protective garments, and we were like, <laughs> "Wow, we just now we're genitalists," um, which was very strange because she was covered and I was covered in a weird way that we were like, "Oh, that's strange." Um, so you weren't we weren't actually like technically nude. Let's take a listen to uh, another scene from Girls. Um, so the, the two of you, uh, you and Lena Dunham's character, Hannah, move in together. And um, you guys are, are really having a blast, like, planning parties and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, um, and part, of these, part of these plans for good times is this complicated plan to do cocaine together. Well, yes. She decides – she gets this idea that she um, – in order to sort of widen her experiences, she's going to do something she's never done before so that then she can write about it. Um, and what is suggested to her is that she tries cocaine for the first time. So she goes on this quest to find cocaine and then enlists me to do it with her since I have done it before. Elijah has done it before. So then we are gonna, we're going to do this together. No, let's take a listen. What are you going to wear tonight? Uh, this probably? Oh, no. Hannah, no. You've never done coke before, so let me explain something. This is not going to be a night of driving around in your mom's Volvo with a bottle of cough syrup and a box of cold McNuggets. You know, I am so excited about this, actually. Now that we have the coke, the scary part is over. We can just enjoy this adventure. I'm just so jazzed to write the f*** out of this story. Oh, we definitely have to go dancing tonight. Andrew Andrew is DJing at Greenhouse. Who's he? They are a couple of gays who dress alike and dance alike, and they both change their name to Andrew. They're like brand consultants and iPad DJs. I'm so excited to introduce you. Yes, please. Hey, let's have the type of night where it's like 5 a.m., and one of us has definitely punched someone who's been on a Disney Channel show. Is there any rule that says we can't just start doing the Coke right now, circa 4 p.m.? I mean, no rule but human decency. Which is not. No. <laughs> I love her so much. It's it's a it's a there's a lot of amazing jokes in there. There was when they were talking about two guys named Andrew who dress alike and dance together. That's real. That's real. Andrew, Andrew. Um, yes, they are DJs in New York, and they are brand consultants and iPad DJs. And um, yeah, and they really do. They dress alike, and they are both go by Andrew, and they are a couple. (laughs) There's this there's this crazy world. I remember when either John Mulaney or Bill Hader was on our show, and we were talking about their character from Saturday Night Live, Stefan. Oh. And they were telling me about how they went to a club, and there was this guy who gets who rolls himself who, who rolls himself up in a carpet at clubs, and then people pay to walk on him. What? <laughs> Or club owners pay him to come and just be and do this. rolled up in this That's carpet. fantastic. Yeah, there's a whole world that I'm not really familiar with that um, that exists. Your character on um, the NBC show The New Normal is um, a, a much more uh, grown-up character than your others, although he does, he does share some personality traits w- with some of the younger characters. Yes, yes. He's, has a, he has a boyish outlook, but the show is about adopting or making children. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I want to play a, a scene from this show. Um, in, this, in this scene, uh, your character, Brian, uh, is sick and tired of watching football from the sidelines and has decided... Ugh. Um, and has decided to uh, join his partner in coaching a, a kids football mm-hmm. team. All right, guys, that's how you do it. Good hustle, guys. I want to coach. Huh? What? Is everything all right, bud? Did you finish your magazines? Yeah, I want to coach. I want to yell. I want to clap. I want to get people excited. Besides, I can only take so much conversation about suburban infidelity and Greek yogurt. Oh, David, uh, we're having a boy, and I want to participate in his life. Right? You don't know anything about football. Of course I do. Watch and marvel. Oh my God. Let's clump together, boys! Clump together! Let's clump together. All right, it's a little rude. I can't see your eyes. Everyone take off your hats. Uh, they're helmets. They're for safety. I got this, David. Okay. I am Coach Brian. Coach David's understudy. I know. A lot of coaches here today. We all have one goal. To run and push and score more points, right? Yeah. Yeah! yeah. So let's cuddle up. When <laughs> when you're, you're, you your character in this couple is the one who doesn't know about football. Yes. Um, do, you, do you have to sort of think technically as an actor about 
how much of the um, how much of the femi gay guy you want to be in this role without it being like unpleasant or gross, but still be representative of the many femi gay guys that exist in the world. Yeah, I can remember saying to the, the doing that very scene um, to Elodie Keene, who who directed that episode, who's really wonderful. Um, and I said to her, I was like, how can we do this and how can I not set my people back <laughs> several years? Right. Well, I mean, it was especially um, when that, when that's the joke. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, is, you know, like I'm a, a grown man who also does not know a lot about football. Um, I know about some other stuff, but I don't uh, No, I don't, I don't follow football. So there's like that aspect of it. Okay. So I can, I mean, the cuddle up and those things are, you know, obviously those are, are jokes. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I I felt like it was not a huge stretch to sort of wrap your head around this guy who really was – who's really trying and really is concerned about making a, a, a connection with this – his unborn son. And this is sort of his first step into sort of, you know, pretending to be a part of it. And sort of what he finds um, at the end – you know, by the end of that episode is that there are other strengths and there are other, you know, manly things that he can he can teach his son um, that don't necessarily have to do with, you know, sports uh, specifically. Have you what have you decided when you have kids you might want to pass on to them? Um, literally nothing. Um, no, I haven't really. I, I, I think what I've taken away at this moment. Great hair. Me I mean, right you have now, great hair. Thanks, I, if I were thanks. you, I would say I want to pass on this great hair. I did have a lovely moment with my, my nephew, Nathan, when I was home, um, who's, uh, how old is Nathan? Eight, I believe. I just made that up. Um, I believe he's like eight or nine. And he asked me if I could help him fix his hair because he wanted his, his, my sister-in-law was like, he really wants his hair to look like yours. Um, and I was very touched by that. So I like, you know, coached a nine-year-old about how to use like, you know, paste, hair paste in his hair. <laughs> and like, if you're going to use a blow dryer, this is how you, you do it. You upgraded his product. I yeah. did. I gave him some product. And um, so I, I felt, you know, I was like, oh, this is a, this is a, you know, a small version of uh, of something that I could you know pass along is how to how to how to fix your hair. It was something he was interested in. I was happy to help. Do you feel like, given that there are so few gay lead characters on television, um, you you have to step lightly in any way in your performances? Um, I feel like the 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 safety net I sort of have is Ryan Murphy and Ali Adler, who who co-created the show together, and um. There are times where I feel like we are, you know, maybe there's a, a larger responsibility there um, just to make sure that we're being um, as honest as possible. But I also feel like what really all we're trying to do is make a comedy. So have there been moments where you've had to sort of calibrate or, a little they, or, bit. You've, had, or you've seen them calibrate? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, luckily, I, I, no one is trying to be a symbol for anything at this point. You know, we're certainly not trying to be you know, America's favorite gay couple. So uh, that frees us up a little bit too because really we're, we're just trying to tell the story, which is pretty specific. Um, but, you know, as the more I talk to people about the show, like a lot of people have this experience, which is interesting, gay and straight, with surrogacy. Um, but, you know, we're just trying to tell the story in a, in a very humorous and heartfelt way and, and that does – sort of relax the process a little bit. But occasionally there will be things that come up that you're like, well, I don't know if we can really – if that's a safe place to go at this point. Even though it might be true and completely valid, like we might want to just like pull that back a little bit because um, it is kind of new territory still. I mean especially when you're making a show on, you know, on NBC for yeah. millions and millions of people. Like there's things that you can't assume people will get and – yeah, but it is, I mean, you know, again, being from Nebraska and, like, getting feedback from, you know, people I went to grade school with or that my mom, you know, goes to church with or whatever, it is interesting um, just, you know, people's awareness probably strictly from film and television um, has informed them that there were there's – our show was sort of greeted with a certain amount of information, um, assumed information that was – uh, I think helpful for us, so we didn't actually have to like, explain a lot of the ins and outs of of what this relationship was. We just sort of got to jump in. And Justin and I don't ever have to do too much like exposition about. I mean, I think we we did like a flashback of like how we met. Um, we did a couple flashbacks of like early dates and things like that, and it was very straightforward. And we didn't have to 
do any extra explaining or you know voc- vocabulary lessons about you know how this works for two gays, um, which is great. And I think that Allie and Ryan continue to sort of write that way and push us that way that we're just telling the story. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Well, Bullseye. thanks Thank for having for me. Being here. Thank Andrew you. Andrew Reynolds is one of the stars of The New Normal, which airs Tuesdays at 9.30, 8.30 Central on NBC. He's also a regular on HBO's Girls. That's right. After a break, Tao Win on the song that changed her life. It felt transcendent. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Finally, it can be revealed. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. Join me on a big boat this September for a trip to the Caribbean and some absolutely amazing entertainment. Music from the Mountain Goats' John Darneal, John Roderick of the Long Winters, Nellie Mackay, and Dan Deacon. Comedy from Mark Marin, John Hodgman, Al Madrigal, Eugene Merman, Hari Kondabalu, Josie Long, Maria Bamford, Jasper Red, Nick Thune, Kurt Brownaller, and Kristen Shaw. Plus some of the awesomest cruisemates in the world. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. Presented by MaximumFun.org, Split Cider, and KCRW. Comedy, music, shuffleboard. Tickets on sale now at BoatPunty.biz. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Tao Wen leads the folk pop band Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. Their music has rhythmic guitar, taut drums, and a rollicking but precise sound. Tao's voice is clear and sure, even when her lyrics are full of anguish. Here's Holy Roller off the band's new album, We the Common. It's too hot for habit. My patience is done with me. I want to live in towns that touch. I want to stay when my temper beats. remembers the first time she heard, you've really got a hold on me, Smokey Robinson song. I was laying on the floor of my family's living room because I wanted to get as close to the speakers as I could. She needed to escape. I grew up in a pretty turbulent house, and so this was what I turned to to get away from what was happening. She wanted to let Smokey's voice surround her entire body. Please, God, can I climb to the speaker and disappear? It's the song that changed her life. That recurring guitar motif, it's so simple, but you can't shake it. You know, all the instrumentation of it is classic Motown, but the core of it is this yearning and loneliness and pain. It made me really happy to hear, but also made me really sad. very sultry, slinking, so disgusted with this love. And you can tell he's still in command. I like this break right here, too. And then how that line comes back with the piano. Genius. I love this line. Don't want to spend another day here. Don't 
the pain. Oh my God, but what is he going to do? He's trapped. I can't quit now. so simple and so straightforward you know it's a pop song of course but the merit in the emotional content of it is, is very impressive to me it always has been I do think that the idea that I could be become a performer that I wanted to came from the song um, it instilled in me this hope that I would create something, finding solace through that. But it all started with listening to the song and, and escaping into it. It felt transcendent. Tao Win fronts the band Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. Their new album is called We the Common. The band sits out on a cross-country tour this week. You can find those dates at TauAndTheGetDownStayDown.com. After a break, Jim Lair. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey, folks, this is Kevin Allison of The State and the podcast Risk, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. X-rated stories, outrageously hilarious stories, tear-jerking stories, you won't believe how real and raw and surprising risk can be. You've heard people say, oh, too much information. Don't be sharing that in mixed company. Well, at risk, we say screw that. Anything goes. So you've got a treasure trove of jaw-dropping entertainment to dig into, my friend. Look us up at MaximumFun.org or, of course, just go to podcast at the iTunes store and search for risk. Risk! It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Jim Lair, wanted to play shortstop for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Instead, he became one of the nation's preeminent newscasters. He hosted the PBS NewsHour for some 30 years, and he remains its executive editor to this day. He's also moderated 12 presidential debates. He recently wrote about those experiences in his memoir, Tension City. And Lair wears yet another hat. He's also an author who's penned 20 novels. The most recent one is called Super. Lara and I spoke in 2010, right around the time Super was published. I know that you went to uh, a junior college, got an associate's degree before right. you went to four-year school. Right. My mom's a, a junior college professor. I, I find that often, um, often people who uh, go to JC, it's uh, because they're taking some unusual path. It's, it's rare for someone uh, to go to JC because they're you know, just doing two years here and then two years there, and that was the plan all along. Um, what led you, what was what was your path? Um, the, uh, the reason I went to J.C., uh, to uh, my junior college, uh, was because we couldn't afford to go to, a, to the University of Texas. And uh, I had to go to work. And uh, the junior college in Victoria, for $40, I could go to school the whole year. $40. And I took this job working in a bus depot, worked eight hours a day at night. And uh, the, the uh, But I also was editor of the newspaper, wrote and edited every story that was in the newspaper, wrote the editorials in addition to the news stories, and then took it to the, the local newspaper and they printed it. And then I came back to the campus and gave it, handed it out to all 320 of my fellow and sister students. So anyhow, it was a, it was a marvelous experience, but it never occurred to me that I would not eventually go on to college and finish and get a degree and be uh, get a journalism degree and be a writer and be uh, Ernest Hemingway or Ernie Pyle or one of those people. And uh, the, um, uh, the the H.L. Mencken, for instance, had this library about the size of, uh, of uh, you know, of two bedrooms at this little junior college. And there was a librarian there and said, you, you want to be a newspaper man, is that right? And I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well... There's a guy named H.L. You ever heard of H.L. Mencken? I said, no, no. Well, look, there's a book down here. You ought to read this. This is uh, it's a biography of him, and it was written by a guy named William Manchester. William Manchester went on to write many books, including Death of a President. He was the guy who wrote the book about the Kennedy assassination. And um, 
Anyhow, I read the I read the book, and I, this is what I wanted to be. And then I wanted to be H.L. Mencken. But all these things just happened, and I, I've just been so fortunate each step along the way. When it came time that, okay, now I was going to go to a university and finish and get a journalism degree, um, I wrote, because I had a typewriter available, I had a typewriter in the office of the bus depot where I was working. I wrote to 37 colleges and universities and asked for their catalogs. Only state colleges, I mean, state universities. That I, there was no no private schools like Harvard or any of that on my, my horizons. And uh, I decided on the University of Missouri because it had a great journalism uh, uh, reputation and all that. And uh, I wrote a letter and applied at the University of Missouri. Working in a bus depot uh, uh, while you were still in school, um, working nights, must have been a, a great place both to um, uh, produce an entire newspaper, um, but also to, uh, you know, a, a place where your thoughts are on, um, you know, literal places you can go. Absolutely. It was it was it was the a the best breeding ground I have ever had for it to be a writer. I mean, I had I I was at behind a ticket counter one night, and uh, some I heard a woman scream, and it was a very small waiting room. And I went into the waiting room, and it was into the it was a woman's restroom. The woman had slit her wrists. Um, one day, a guy was at the ticket counter. And as he was, he said he wanted a one-way ticket to Houston. I made out the ticket, and just as I put the ticket on the on the on the counter, two guys, two cops came in and arrested him. This man had just robbed somebody and all this sort of stuff. Uh, one time they had uh, the border patrol was coming in and rounding up because uh, this is South Texas, so a lot of brown-skinned people around, and uh, they were being rounded up as uh, as illegal immigrants. Uh, I had a guy I worked right next to as another ticket agent who was fill in for me and whatever, and he he stole money from me. I didn't know that by uh, by the way he uh, he sold tickets that 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 were he sold them, but it looked like they were I was the agent, and so he pocketed the money, and then the auditors thought I had had stolen the money and it was I mean, I mean I I I learned a lot about uh, about the I also learned how to speak into a microphone. You want me to demonstrate that? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. Please. All right. It was the first time I was paid money to speak into a microphone. This is calling this is Victoria, Texas, halfway between Houston and Corpus Christi. May I have your attention, please? This is your last call for Continental Trailways, 8.10 p.m. Silversides Air Conditioned Through Liner to Houston. Now leaving from lane one. For Inez at Nuganeta, Louise, Al Campo, Pierce, Wharton, Hungerford, Kendleton, Beasley, Rosenberg, Richmond, Sugarland, Stafford, Missouri, City, and Houston. All aboard! Don't forget your baggage, please. Ten stars. That's what I award that performance. Thank you. How did you end up in uh, in public TV rather than commercial TV? I was a, a newspaper reporter, newspaper editor. Worked. I was city editor of the afternoon newspaper in Dallas, Dallas Times Herald. I'd written a novel. It was made into a movie. Uh, we made uh, uh, $45,000 on the movie, which was a lot of money. This is 1959. Uh, no, wait. I'm, no, 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 no. This was 62. 1969. Sorry, 1969. The book came out in 1966. The movie came out in 69. And my wife Kate, uh, we still had we had two kids and the third one coming, and um, Kate said, "Well, you know, you always said you wanted to write full time, let's do it." And she was a writer too, and uh, so I quit to write full time. And the public television station in Dallas, I'd only been on television one time, and that was kind of a local meet the press type thing. And they they called me and asked me if I would be a consultant to them for news and public affairs, work two days a week. They didn't do any programs, so I figured, you know, what the hell have I got to lose? <laughs> and uh, it was great. And then we one thing led to another, and we decided to try an experimental news program. Got a Ford Foundation grant. I wrote a proposal. And Fred Friendly, the famed Fred Friendly, who was in with the Ford Foundation, funded us. And uh, suddenly I was on television, and I hired nothing but newspaper, former newspaper reporters. And uh, did that for two uh, two years, and, and then I was offered to— uh, Opportunity to go to PBS to go to uh, go to Washington, and I I never worked in commercial television. Uh, I I never ever long. In fact, at the University of Missouri School of Journalism, 
to be on television. I mean, give me a break. I mean, that's not serious. People don't go on television. Serious people write for newspapers and magazines. So I, I didn't take any courses. I had no longing to do it at all, no no desire to do it. But I had the opportunity, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, it was uh, – uh, I, I never turned back, and I have, as I say, I've never worked in any other kind of television, but public television, and I've been blessed to be with uh, with people who shared all my values and all my aspirations. It's been terrific. It must have been exciting to uh, get involved in public television at a time when public television was really figuring out what it was and what it could be. Absolutely, absolutely. It was uh, it was kind of created as a result of a of a uh, of a meeting, you know. There were some people who thought, well, no, we've got this thing here. It's called educational television. Now, educational television was, you know, television from the classroom, and there was television stations all over the country. Education because it had been mandated by Congress, and then somebody said, well, let's let's do more than just that's more than than classroom stuff. Well, let's do things for children. And Sesame Street got developed, and they were they started doing documentaries. And I came the time I came in uh, with with KERA and then the PBS. Uh, PBS had just been formed, the Public Broadcasting Service, which is everybody calls it a network. It's not a network at all. It's essentially a programming service. It's a cooperative. It's run by all the three or more than three hundred public television stations, and and it keeps reinventing itself all the time. It had it, the purposes uh, kind of remain the same, but uh, there's always been funding problems in public broadcasting. And so, it, you know, the 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 interesting thing about it, about not having a lot of money to broadcast in a business that requires a lot of money to broadcast, is that you get your priorities straight whether you want to you don't you can't afford to waste any money on something that doesn't matter and so you if you say well we could we could do this little cute story about uh you know uh pineapple sundays or something like that uh, or we could probably do something on the fall of the berlin wall maybe send somebody there for an extra day well we we do the berlin stuff because you can't do both so that really focuses your mind, and and it, it exists to this very day. I mean, uh, public broadcasting right now, the news hour. We've been on the air for thirty-five years. We have financial problems, but we are more vital, more viable, and more innovative now than we were before, because we have to use our money so wisely. We use every little technology, technological thing. You know, you used to spend thousands, millions of dollars on satellite feeds. Well, you can do that now through the internet, but it's very difficult to do, and it takes time. You got to have you got to have people, most of them young, who know how to do use the technology technology to our advantage, and it keeps a little bit of hunger is good for for people who are are trying to uh, do serious business in uh, in journalism. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jim Lair. To most Americans, he's a very familiar face. He hosted the PBS NewsHour for more than three decades. We spoke in 2010. You know, TV news is, by its sort of very nature, a, a, a linear form. There's no way to um, – I mean, it, there is to some extent now in, in new media. But essentially what you're doing is, uh, unlike a newspaper where you're essentially – providing a smorgasbord of different stuff, everything from crossword puzzles to the jumble to international news to, um, you know, a real estate column. Um, television news is presenting something to you where the uh, assumption is that you're going through from beginning to end and, um, you know, paying attention to all of it, even if maybe you care a little bit more about one part or another. Um, how do you think that that linearity, that that need to sort of like make a judgment of this is the stuff that everyone who's watching should get um, affects your news judgment relative to, for example, doing print? Sure. Well, that's basically the old-fashioned view. I mean, it's the gatekeeper form of journalism. I've been a gatekeeper for over 30 years. And before when I was an editor of a newspaper, I was a gatekeeper. Essentially, you just outlined it. The stuff comes in, and you're known by the stories you don't do, as well as the stories you do do. And it is absolutely right. It's linear. Now, the new world order 
and information is completely horizontal. It's coming at you all the time, and it's in your right and your left, and it's over you, under you. It's everywhere. The the flood of information you cannot go anywhere without somebody either yelling at you or the or telling you something that that you analytically or, uh, or or otherwise it may be true or may not not be true or whatever. In the old days, in the linear days, we would we the old fashioned gatekeeper would 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 sort through all of that, and, and then we'd have a neat and tidy newspaper or a neat and tidy newscast. Now, the horizontal, what we're doing with the news hour, we are we're going, we're, I've, as I've said a million times to people, I don't care if you watch it linearly as a television program or you watch it horizontally on a pink iPod. It's, it's, it's the journalism that matters. And what we're also doing, and everybody's doing it, we're not the only ones, is we, anybody, if, you're a, if you've got a, got a, a journalism uh, perspective that is real and that is verifiable and professional, we'll make a deal with you. Collaboration to amortize uh, journalism, that's where, what we have to do. The idea that, that the newspapers can afford to send two or three reporters to City Hall anymore, forget it. You know, they, you, they may send one reporter, and that person may also have to do television, may also do blogs, may also do radio things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, that's what we all have to do. All of us who care about journalism and are, are in the business, we have to, we have to familiar, familiarize ourselves with all of the horizontal stuff and let the mechanics worry about how we get all that out there. Um, and, and eventually what's happening now is it's become almost – there's going to be a reinvention of the linear approach because there's so much stuff. Most people do not want to spend all day in front of a computer screen reading blogs or listening to ra- or listening to radio, not your program, but other programs, people screaming at Most each other. Most people do want to spend their whole day listening to my program. Yes, yes, right. But that's the only exception that I can right. think of. Everybody but that. Uh, but 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 I could I we would have folks the new gatekeepers. They won't be old white men. Like I am, there'll be a, there, there's going to be a whole new generation of gatekeepers, and they're going to have to build trust, just like newspaper A and newspaper B and television newspaper whatever, and uh, and they will say, okay, uh, I want to listen. To, I want to know what Jesse had to say today, but I don't. Ha- I didn't have time to listen to. It. I don't want to hear the whole thing, maybe, but I want to be. If I do, I want to be able to do it. But I also want to know what uh, what what did the New York Times say about this today. And uh, also, by the way, somebody there's some this weird blogger out here, and and somebody who does this professionally goes through all of this for for people, and that those those gatekeepers, those people who do that, are they have to build up trust and all that sort of stuff. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. There's too much stuff out there, and it's driving people crazy, uh, in a good way. You know, all this information is available, but uh, we they they need some help. We talked about the the ways that um, resources shape priorities. Um, in in public radio news, there was always this joke, I and mean, maybe it's a, a little less applicable today. But uh, it it was that since since there were very few reporters, since uh, NPR maybe had a couple dozen reporters, they would mostly um, uh, read about something in the newspaper, report it the next day and uh, call it analysis. Mm-hmm. In a funny way, while NPR now, say, has a, a few hundred reporters rather than a few dozen reporters and, and hundreds more if you count local stations, that perspective has been a, a strength of the form as, as those resources have grown rather than a weakness. That idea that timeliness isn't the only essential quality of news and I wonder what ways you can distinguish your news content that aren't just first and most. But um, it, it seems like public broadcasting is, is uniquely set up to compete and differentiate itself in, in other areas besides those two. Well, I, I agree with you. I think that um, uh, by the, the in this new world order that we're in now, if you want to know... Did they arrest the suspect in the in the attempted bombing in at Times Square? There, you can find out in a second. All right, but but who was this guy? Well, what do you want to know about him? Was he part of a group? What group? 
Well, what, where'd that group come from? Every step along the way, there's got to be a place that you can continue to go. And public broadcasting, in my opinion, is the place that takes you through those various steps. We always got to keep in mind that um, the old way of doing things, which is the first thing you used to be the first time you heard about a story was when you read your newspaper. By the time you read a newspaper now, you know everything. You never you know what happened long before you ever see that newspaper. So what's the point of the newspaper now? Is to go ask, start peeling it back, keep moving back, moving back, moving back. One of the reasons newspapers are not doing very well because they haven't caught on to that. They didn't. They they haven't hired the same. They haven't they haven't trained their folks to move the story uh, with where the where the curiosity is about the story and. Uh, in public broadcasting, uh, the news hour, we tried very hard to do that, and uh, sometimes we sometimes we don't we fail. We do, it doesn't it doesn't work. We cannot we can no longer see ourselves as the first responder journalist. You've got to be that second and third. And you're talking you're you're you you put your finger on it. This is still a development stage for that, um, and you've got it's got to be compelling. I mean, you got to realize there are all kinds of places you can go second or third time. Second or third step after you find, well, I already know about they arrested the guy. All right, but now who do I want to go to to go take the next step? And you've got, it's, uh, you know, well, I, you know, I, I mean, I don't, maybe I don't, I'm not interested in the New York Times. Maybe I'm, you know, we, but you've got to, it, it's got to all be there. And those of us who are, who are, who are in this business have to, uh, have to go with the new flow. And public broadcasting should be leading the way. Some ways we are, some ways we're not. Jim Lara is the executive editor and former anchor of the PBS NewsHour. Lara's most recent memoir is about his experience as a presidential debate moderator. It's called Tension City. You can also find his most recent novel online and in bookstores. It is called Super. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. I know we all love to talk with our buddies about office space and idiocracy. But is it okay if my favorite Mike Judge movie is the one we sort of ignore? Because I love that other movie, Extract. I love it so much. Well, I said If you haven't seen it, you're not alone. It's the story of a man whose business is very successful. He makes flavorings, extracts. His dream is to sell out, sell his factory, and retire early. But the truth is that his home life is sort of sad and sexless. You should come by tonight. Half-price well drinks while the game's going. Yeah, might as well. There's no action going on at my house, that's for sure. Why not? Is your wife out of town? No, I just haven't been late in about a month. So he makes a very bad decision. He thinks he might have a chance to sleep with this beautiful woman who enters his life mysteriously. She would cheat on you if she were placed in temptation's way, and yet you are in temptation's way, and you're not cheating on her. That's right. Okay. So he hires a gigolo to sleep with his wife because in this one stupid moment, he thinks that that would give him some moral cover to be disloyal himself. And frankly, it only gets worse from there for him, which sounds kind of madcap and crazy, but it's actually not. In fact, it's almost sweet, except that it's very bitter. The thing that makes Extract special is a thing that Mike Judge does better than anyone else in the world. He's a cartoonist first, right? And he has a cartoonist ability to take something small and real and pull it and tug it and expand it until it is just this size of grotesque. In Beavis and Butthead, it was the sort of empty, desperate mind of a teenage boy. In Office Space, the little horrible things that happen at work. In King of the Hill, it was the strange little weird dynamics of, of a family. 
So anyway, Jason Bateman is at the center of Extract. He's sort of a a straight-laced businessman with just enough fear and desperation to do stupid stuff and just enough sweetness to get us to follow him down the rabbit hole. And this sort of straight-laced guy is surrounded by crazy. There is his nightmarish neighbor who will not shut up. Hey, Joel. Glad I caught you. How have you been? I'm in such a hurry right now, Nathan. Yeah? Hey, listen, real quick, while I've got you here, what are you guys doing November 17th? There's a stupid woman in his factory who blames everyone else for everything. Are we still looking into replacing her with a robot? Yeah, sure. There's a personal injury lawyer so sickening he could only be played by Gene Simmons. We can settle this right now. Call it even. I will drop this case right now if you let me slam your in this door because that's what happened to my client. And then there is this sound. It's the sound of Bateman's wife tying the drawstring on her sweatpants. The sound of the drawbridge to her love castle being drawn up while Bateman sits astride his horse on the other side of the moat. We haven't even addressed Ben Affleck wearing a party shirt and a shaggy beard, slinging drinks in a motel bar, dispensing some of the worst friendly advice you can imagine. Basically, the performance of a lifetime for Ben Affleck. I may have a solution. What? You need to take some Xanax. Xanax. Isn't that for anxiety? It's good for all psychological problems in the DSM-4. Xanax basically just makes you feel good. That's why it works for everything. I take it for the common head cold. But even given all this, it's not really a movie about what's wrong with people. Mike Judge and his protagonist see all this stuff that's awful in the world, and it gets to them. They go to dark places. But they figure out what's right about the world, too. When it comes to it, every one of these people is saved by their relationships to the other people and by their essential decency and dignity. Even the gigolo is redeemed in the end. The sweet, dumb gigolo. Look, I know you probably want to kick my ass. I just want to tell you that... I'm not going to see Susie anymore, so you don't have to worry. She's really into you, dude. I guess that's why she married you and whatever. The only exception is Gene Simmons, but let's face it, that guy's irredeemable. The movie is about a man whose business is extracts, which isn't far from what Judge does. He pulls those essential flavors out of life. And ultimately, they're surprisingly sweet. That's my outshot. She's my fingers when I want to feel. She's the only thing. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.